And if you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 John, toward the back of the Bible, 1 John. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some on the back table. Uh, feel free to grab one, and if you don't own a Bible, uh, keep it. We'd love to get, get a Bible into your hands. First John chapter 3 is where we will be at today, and I'm going to uh, read the entire chapter. Follow along as I read. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of him. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you don't know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in, in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep His commandments and do what, he pleases, what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of, the, of His Son, Jesus Christ, 
and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning uh, knowing that you are indeed good, knowing that you are indeed completely sovereign, yet also knowing that we live uh, in a world with a lot of evil. And we don't always understand how all of those things work together. And sometimes we question, sometimes we doubt. doubt. God, as we come into into these words today, we trust and we believe that these are in fact your words spoken through John, that these words contain the truth that has the power to convict us, to cut our flesh, to wake us up from the dead, to explain things that are hard to understand. God, as we come into these words today, I pray that that we will find our authority right here on these pages, and that, that you will speak to us, that we will see and understand your wisdom, that you will give your understanding to us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, we have been reminded once again this weekend that evil tragically exists, haven't we? Um, As a father, I can't think, uh, can't help but think of those fathers and mothers who are going to be mourning this Christmas. It'll be a, uh, a Christmas that they will never forget um, for a very tragic reason. And it's, it's hard for us to not, in some ways, look at those around us, look at our own families, and, and try to imagine the pain that they must be experiencing, going through, and, and feeling, and then trying to understand once again in this world that we live in what to make sense of all of this. How do we understand the evil that is so prevalent? How do we understand the suffering that we are so often forced to endure. What some do is they remove God from the answer. They say, well, if we take away God, if we say that there is no God, then that makes everything better. That makes things more understandable. We just live in a world of chaos. I was speaking with a friend of mine some time ago who's uh, an agnostic, borderline atheist, She has, uh, in attempting to understand suffering and problems and tragedies in this world, her 
her response has been to just simply remove God. Well, there just must be no, no God. Um, and as I was sitting with her over a cup of coffee, uh, she was uh, in tears and depressed at her own uh, answer and response to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And what she was saying was, this is all, all, all that we have. This is it. We live in a world that has, that has come together based on the survival of the fittest. We've come, we live in a world where the weak have always been destroyed so the strong can survive. And this is all that we have now. And this is the way we will continue until this world is finally and fully destroyed by our own power. And she has found absolutely no comfort in removing God to find an answer. That's all we're left with. All we're left with is evil, senseless destruction, senseless suffering that's never going to end and never get, taking us and getting us anywhere. Guys, you have to understand what we have in the Christian message. We have to fully understand this. We have to understand as we are coming into Christmas what we have in the Christmas story. We have a picture of a God who is not just somewhere out there, far off, at best maybe having some feelings for these earthlings. No, we have a picture of a God who at Christmas became flesh and entered into our suffering. And what we see here in 1 John, two things I think are happening in 1 John. One, he is writing to people who are denying that God came in the flesh. So John is saying, no, he came in the flesh. We have to remember that. We have to understand that. He was here. He entered into our suffering. He isn't just some far off, aloof kind of God, but he was here. He walked among us and he suffered among us as a human being, all right? And then John is also saying, now because of that, we are reborn. Those who find faith in him, those who are transformed by him, we're actually transformed. And we are actually turned into something else. And so what we see here in 1 John, specifically in this chapter, we see the story of Christmas, we see the broader story of Christianity, and we see something that helps us to make sense of the tragic world that we live in. So I've read it already, and I just simply, this, during this, this, the next few minutes here, I want to give you simply three observations, three ways to look as we, as we consider this passage in 1 John. And I'll give them to you right now, and then I'll, we'll, we'll talk about them. So three ways to look. First, we are going to look back. John wants us to look back, and then John wants us to look forward, and then John wants us to look inward. Um, this, this text has been difficult for me. It's John writes, he, he repeats things. He, he's emphasizing things over and over. He's going all over the place. And, and I think we can summarize what, what John is trying to get across in these three different places to look. And I think these three different places where we can just set our eyes will help us make sense of this world at Christmas time. Is everybody tracking with me? Are we ready to get in? 
So we're going to look back. We're going to then look forward. And then we're going to look inward. Verse 1. First, look back. Verse 1. See, he says, what kind of love the Father has given to us. See. Or behold. That word means like stop for a moment. Recognize this. See this. Look at this. Gaze upon this. We in our culture today are so fast, aren't we? We are so rushed, especially this time of year. If there's any time of year we ought to just take it, take it, I don't know, be chill and take it slow, it's Christmas, right? And we are so rushed. I think one of the challenges at Christmas is we all, we all realize that we just lived rushed lives. And January 1st is, is, is coming pretty soon, and we are still running around, as my mother would say, like a chicken with our heads cut off. We are so rushed and we are so fast, even when we, if we spend any time in devotions, we are rushed in our devotional readings. We're just simply trying to get through the day, trying to get through the church service, trying to get through the rest of the day on Sunday, trying to do something, trying to fill up our mind with something, trying to get something done. And what John is saying is, behold, like stop, gaze upon something here, look at the love of the Father. I want you just to take your time here. I want you just to slow down and do something we don't typically do, and that's to just simply gaze. And the object that he wants us to be gazing on is the love of God. So if there's any hope with this message this morning that I'm giving you, any point, it's that we do that, that we gaze that we look, that we see, that we actually see the love of God for us this morning. And then as he explains this, he says, see, behold, look, what kind of love the Father has given to us. He says this, that we should be called children of God. That we should be called children of God. At one time, we were not children of God. At one time, we were lost. At one time, we were confused. We were bound to sin. We were chained to our previous family whose father is the devil himself. And frankly, we were pretty content, weren't we? Like, that's kind of all we knew. And we were pretty happy being part of that family. And we were not a child of God, not in this sense. But oh, His love for us, that He would break into that family and that He would grab us and that He would choose to adopt us and that He would rescue us and that He would, he, what He says here is we, were, we should be called children of God. I mean, it was His action. He called us. He did it for us. He called you His child. He beckoned you. He wooed you into His family. Oh, the love of the Father that He would call us children. And then He goes on, and, and John, sort of being, John is a pastor, as we've talked about, and being a pastor, he, he really wants to, I think, explain this even further. And 
and go deeper with God's love. Look, look, look at verse 16 with me. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life. God's love isn't just simply a feeling. The quicker we can redefine love from feeling to action, the quicker we'll begin to understand God's love. The quicker we will begin to understand God. He didn't just simply have some some intense feelings for you, but he actually came into this world. Do you see what Christmas is all about? Philippians 2 explains what Christmas is all about. Though he, being in the form of God, though he had all the glory of God, the essence of God, he did not count the glory and the essence and the form of God something to be grasped. And so he then made himself what? Nothing. He came into this world. 2,000 years ago, he emptied himself of that glory, of that radiance, of that essence. And, And he was born into an obscure village to a peasant girl. He was laid into a feeding trough. He spent the majority of his life working in a carpenter's shop. His humbling went down and down. And down it and down it went to the point of death. Even the death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians. That that shameful, agonizing death. Nailed naked between two thieves. The world pointing their finger at him as if he committed a crime. And though he was sinless, the world grew dark. I believe representing the sin that was descending upon him. Down and down his humbling went. As he died, as he took on the guilt, took on the punishment, the wrath of God, for the sins that he did not commit. What we see and what I think John wants us to see is the, the, the great love of God. Some of the guys in the church and I were reading Thomas Watson this last, last Wednesday. And Watson told this story of a man who was walking through his garden just weeping, just tears running down, and someone asked him, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And he said, oh, the love of Christ. Oh, the love of Christ. When was the last time you weeped? Because God's love was just so fascinating, strong, powerful. Gaze upon it. Behold, see the love of God. Now, 
He also came into, as, as we're looking back, came, Christ came into this world not only to teach us, not only to, to be a, a, a great leader, not simply to begin a movement. Jesus didn't just come into, into the world to show his great humbling or to just simply enter into our suffering. Now, all of those things are true. But there was something even more cosmic, a, a, a grander reason as to why Jesus came into this world, why Christmas happened. So as we're continuing to look back, remember we're looking back right now at the love of God, I want you to see the reason for Christmas, all right? Verse 8, the second half of verse 8, I'll read the whole verse. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, he says, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Look at this, the reason the Son of God appeared. Why, why did Jesus... Why was he born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? What is Christmas all about? The reason the Son of God appeared, he says, was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason that little baby was born and laid in that manger, that cute little manger scene that we love to put up on our mantle, the reason that happened was so that baby would destroy all the works of evil in this world. When we think about tragedies, when we consider the world around us, when we, when we look at what's happening, how do we respond to that? What does our Christmas story have anything to do with that? What does our Christian message have anything to say to that? We have to understand that we are part of a story in which God not only came to resonate with us and to identify with us and to be tempted in every, in every way that we are and to enter into our suffering, to identify with the suffering and not with the strong, to, to show that he's inside the suffering, not outside. All of that's true. But the reason he came was to destroy the evil, to destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus then came as this baby with this mission to go to war and to fight. And as that darkness descended upon him as he hung on that cross, and the sin of those of you descended upon him, nailed him to the cross, the sins of all of those of God's children the murderers, the rapists, the, the molesters, the pornographers, the liars, the cheats, the idolaters, you go on, you name it. Jesus became all of that in that moment. And it crushed Him. Your sin crushed Him. And it put Him in the ground. It killed Him. And then three days later, Listen, what is the worst thing that evil can do to us in this world? What is the very worst thing that the devil can do to us in this world? Is it not take our life? Kill us? Is that not the worst thing that evil can do to us? Jesus destroyed the works 
of evil. The sin crushed him, killed him, he was dead, and he went through suffering and came out the other side, destroying the greatest tactic of the enemy, resurrection through death. Even the grave couldn't hold him. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's not there. All right, so we we look back and we see the love of God poured out in action, not just through feelings, but in actions through sending His Son into this world to conquer sin, evil, and to destroy the works of the devil. But now we also have to look ahead. Because so often I think a lot of times within our Christian understanding, we look back and we leave it right there. And we forget to actually look ahead to see what's coming, all right? And that's what John does right here. Look at verse 2. So he looks ahead. Beloved, he says, we are God's children now, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, Nobody looks like a child of God right now. He, he says we don't, actually, we don't actually appear as we are. We're like incognito. We look pretty much like everyone else. You don't, you don't walk into a church and all of a sudden your jaw hits the floor because, oh my goodness, all these people look like children of God. <laughs> Some churches may try that but they just look weird. For the most part, I mean, we dress in worldly clothes, right? We, we eat similar foods. We have health problems, just like, largely because of the foods we eat, right? Just like the rest of the world. For the most part, I mean, we, we look pretty, I don't know, average, pretty normal. Even when we look inside at the deeper levels of the spiritual levels, Often, I mean, you and I will be looking at and examining ourselves, and sometimes we're just convicted because, like, man, sometimes I don't know if I'm much different than anyone else. Like, when, I, when, we, when we examine ourselves and we begin to see just evil upon evil inside of us, a sea of sin that lives, that exists inside of us, we struggle, and just every day we wake up and we're battling against sin, against the desires that once controlled us, against the flesh. So he's saying we don't, nobody looks like a child of God right now. But what he's doing is he's looking us forward and he says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, this is as central to our understanding of the Christian message as the doctrine of forgiveness itself. We have to, when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian, it means, yes, we are forgiven. That's important, and that's something we cling to, but we're not just simply forgiven with no future hope of anything really different than what we currently see. As central to our understanding of what Jesus did, it's also looking forward to his return. 
And to the fact, he says, that when we see Him, I mean, we, like His return, John is saying, is going to be so powerful that you just simply see Christ coming back as the King to destroy all evil and set up His kingdom. And when we, when we just lay our eyes upon Him, there is such beauty and majesty and power there that we are immediately, in the twinkling of an eye evidently, transformed into His likeness. And sin is no more. We no longer struggle with the things that we currently struggle with. Every tear is wiped away. There's no more crying. There's no more pain, for the old order is put away. And we are made new. So first, two things that I, ju- that I want to point out, what we see here, is first, that Christ is indeed returning. As we consider Christmas, as we go into this Christmas season, as we are currently, currently in Advent, we are reminded of the baby that came in the manger to destroy sin, but we have to also recognize that Christmas is just as much about anticipating and awaiting and longing for His return as King who has already destroyed the works of the evil one to set up his reign. And so when we see tragedies at Christmas time, as we walk through the pains of this weekend and, and, and con- just continuing on in this life, as we, as we experience these kind of tragedies, when we begin to understand what Christmas ought to really be about, it, tragedies do not actually remove from us the spirit of Christmas, but if anything, tragedies enhance the spirit of Christmas within us, and that is the anticipation, the longing, the mourning, the waiting for the old order to be passed away. Are you longing for that this morning? Are you longing? Are you awaiting His return? Do you wake up in the morning and turn on the news and say, come, Lord Jesus. Come with power. Come as the King to set up your kingdom. Second, what we see here is that we are changed, that we are transformed, and that sin, tears, crying, pain is absolutely no more. So we look back and we see His love and we explore His love. We gaze upon it. We look upon it. We look forward and we see what is to come globally for the world and individually for each one of us who are reborn. And then thirdly, we look, and I believe John wants us to look inward to look inside of us. And so let's go ahead and do that. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Everyone, he says, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is 
lawlessness. Now, we, sin, sin makes us dirty and we need to be cleaned. But sin, sin doesn't just simply make us dirty as if we are some uh, fundamentally beautiful person underneath the filth. And all we need is sort of the Jesus bath. And then we're cleaned. Now Jesus does give us the Jesus bath. That's what baptism symbolizes is the Jesus bath, right? We are cleansed. We are purified. But what he's saying here is that sin doesn't just make us dirty. Sin actually makes us lawless, meaning we are guilty. Now think about it. If someone in, if someone in America is lawless, they're breaking the law of the country, they don't just need a bath, right? We don't just take them and give them like a bath and say, okay, you're clean now. Go on with yourself. No, you're guilty. Like every fiber of your being is guilty. So what he's saying is, is that sin then at the core is not just some, it's not just like dirt, but it's actually something that makes us dreadfully guilty. John wants us to see that sin is absolutely unthinkable for the Christian. That sin is breaking the law of God that at our core, in our, every fiber of our being becomes guilty of sin. So Jesus not only cleans, cleans us, but he also, as we talked about two weeks ago in chapter one, he is our propitiation meaning he stands in our place and he takes our punishment for us. And then we ha- are given his righteousness. But I want to go on with this. Look at verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The key to this now is in verse 9, because if we leave it right there, we might say, well, does that mean that we are sinless? Nobody that abides in Him keeps on sinning? Does that mean that we are supposed to be people that never, ever sin again? The key is right here, look at it, verse 9, He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in Him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What he's saying is this. It is impossible for the person who has truly been reborn, the person who has been transformed, regenerated by the Spirit of God, and we have moved from that position of guilt into now adoption into his family. It's impossible, he's saying, to continue in a sinful lifestyle. To go on sinning without repentance, without moving, without fighting against it. It's impossible for us because he says his seed now, as any family, his seed is now in us. So here's what I think John is repeating over and over and over again in 1 John. And by the way, guys, if you get a chance, just read all five chapters in one sitting, and you're going to find that he literally repeats himself just constantly. And what he's repeating, and I think what he's trying to get at, is, is, is this. 
that if we are truly born again, if we are truly reborn and we've moved from the position of guilt into a freed position of being a son or daughter of God, if we are truly born again, we have a new nature, he says, and so now it's impossible to make a practice of sin. We cannot just keep continuing in sin. Now here is why Christianity in America freaks me out. We have become so casual and so carefree and light in our faith. We have no intensity in our faith. I heard one pastor say, I hear a lot of Christians complaining about sin issues in their life, and I see very few who are going to war against those sin issues in their life. We are so casual, we are so carefree, we, are, we, are, we lack any kind of intensity in our faith, and therefore we have become so good at minimizing and justifying sin at every single turn in our life. And what John is doing here is he's trying to give us a perspective on sin to wake us up and so that we may see that sin is unthinkable for us as children of God. Why would I ever want to continue doing that when I'm now this? Why would I want to continue in this practice when Christ loves me in this way? Why, when I realize that my sin nailed him to the cross, would I want to continue in that? It doesn't make sense. And guys, as as American Christians, we have become such great quote-unquote theologians, and we have found ways to contextualize every moral and ethical code that's found in the New Testament for our own cultural preference. And it's scary. Christians are not just simply people who are sinless, perfect, but rather we are people who deeply recognize the sin that is in our life, and we call it sin. And we aren't fine with it. One, one pastor said, I know that I, my congregation is believing the gospel not when I see them sinless, but when I hear them confessing their sins to one another. When we begin to look inward and we begin to say, ah, I'm a wreck. And we begin to confess our sins to one another and begin to fight in the battle that's already been won. This pastor says, that's when I see people believing the gospel. We typically do one uh, uh, of two things. Either we, uh, we deny sin, we all of a sudden believe we're such a great theologian that we can contextually explain it all away and we, and we don't call it sin anymore or we um, settle. We say, well, 
This is just a thorn in my flesh. This is just something I'm going to struggle with forever. This is, uh, I'm just going to go to the grave participating in this, struggling with this. And we don't fight against it. There's no sense of hatred for it. It never makes us cry. What John wants to do for us here is to get us to open our eyes to see sin as it actually is, to see it as breaking the law of God, making us guilty, understanding though that as we look back that we're reminded that Jesus is our propitiation, that he stood in our place, that he's removed us of our sin, and so now why would we want to continue in it? Why would we want to continue in something that has been so destructive in our life? So we look backward, we look forward, and then we look inward. And we ask ourselves, does the, it, what we see on the inside, what we see being practiced in our lives, does it contradict what we see when we look backward and forward? You guys tracking with me there? John takes us backward. Look, look at the vast, the great love of God. Adopted you as his child. He takes us forward. Look, Christ is coming back. And when he returns, you will be transformed. And then he says, look inward. Look inward. Look at yourself now. Does it make sense with the backward and the forward? Does it make sense with what you're seeing? With God's broader, redemptive plan? for humanity? Or are there some serious contradictions? I want you to feel the force of this chapter. I want you to feel the force of what John is saying. How can a child of God want to live like a child of the devil? And John just keeps repeating himself over and over and over. Know God's love. Know your place. Know your status as an adopted son or daughter. Know what your rebirth means. Know what your, your, your regeneration means for you. Ten and a half months ago, um, I gave birth, well, my wife gave birth. Let's <laughs> Ten and a half months ago, my wife gave birth um, to our very first son, um, and I brought him into my home. I'll just throw me in there somewhere. <laughs> I had something to do with it. And uh, he is this fat little baby, our first son who will carry on the family name. Um, we feel like we can, be, we can be done now. We've had a son, right? I've got two beautiful daughters, seven years old, Jaden, five years old, Eden, this weekend, um, they were with our uh, friends over on the Eastern Shore. And I have to admit that as, as the pictures of the, the children who were lost in Connecticut um, came onto my screen, I think we all do this. We, we, we think about the people that we know. We think about ours. And so my two daughters, five and seven, I mean, right in that range, that age range, 
and, and, and we, we sense this, I don't know, this, this love for those that we know, for our children. Now, here's the crazy thing, all right? I've only known my kids for, at the most, seven years. Isn't that wild to think about? As much as we love our kids, we haven't known them very long. I've known some of you guys longer than I've known some of my kids. But I love them more than I love you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. I've known at the most seven and then ten months. And, and my love as a father for my kids is just so tremendous. I mean, I, I want them to know my love. I want them to experience and feel my love. I never want them to doubt their place in my family. Even when they do something wrong, I don't want them to doubt the fact that their last name is still Kurz, right? Because I love them. And then I consider Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which says, He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to be called His sons. Do you understand God's love for you? That He chose you, adopted you, predestined you for adoption, not just simply before you were born, but before the world was created, He knew you, He loved you, and He said, that one is mine. I'm adopting that one. It's my child. It's my son. That's my daughter. Do you see the love of the Father for you today? Do you know His love this morning? Now, how can any one of us, knowing the love of God, bearing that family name, not detest anything in our life that contradicts being part of His family? How can we not detest any sin in our life? How can we not long for that day where Christ will return triumphantly as the King and we will forever just all evil eradicated and we will live in, in the way that we ought to live and we will appear as He is. How can we not long for that? Three points of application and then we're going to close here. Number one, we have an adoption in God, which actually transforms us. We have an adoption which actually transforms. Being part of God's family transforms you. I briefly was walking to my office the other day and I briefly spoke to some drug dealers that I'm trying to establish a relationship with. And I got about a half a block and a police car swung up behind me, jumped out, I'm being frisked. I'm like, does this have anything to do with the fact that I just talked to the drug dealers back there? I'm just kind of putting two and two together. Um, and I said, well, listen, I'm a pastor and um, just trying to establish some relationships here with these guys. And he was like, well, 
These guys, you're not doing a very good job because these guys will shoot you any minute. You're not going to get, you're not going to change. They're not going to be changed. What we, what we have that the world doesn't understand, what we have that no system of justice understands is the gospel. This adoption as a child of God. What we have is the reality that the gospel actually changes people. It doesn't just forgive you, it changes you. It transforms you into something new. And so last week we baptized a former drug dealer. How about that? Amen? Because the gospel transforms you and it changes you into something new. And the system, the world, just doesn't understand that. And you can, each one of us, we can consider our lives. And, you know, in, in our world, in our culture, we, put, we elevate some sins above others. And we say some people are harder to reach than others. And some people are, are worse than others. It's just not true. The reality is each one of us, as we look back into our life, even the subtleties of our sinful nature, we were impossible at one time. But we are adopted as God's children, and we have an adoption which actually transforms. Number two, we have an adoption which gives us hope through tragedy. We have an adoption in Christ Jesus who, which gives us hope through a tragedy. Just a reminder, He came as a baby to destroy the works of evil, and He's coming back as a king who has already destroyed the works of evil. And it gives us hope through tra tragedy. My, my friend that I spoke about earlier, who doesn't, does not believe in any God, it's her way of coping with tragedy and problems and suffering in the world. I said to her one time, um, what if Jesus is actually coming back? What if, what if, like, what if Revelation is true, 20 and 21, and we see that all tears will be wiped away, all pain, that sin will be forever done away with. Sin will forever be punished. Evildoers will forever be punished. And that God's kingdom will be set up on earth as it is in heaven. What if that's true? And she said, if that's true, then it gives us a lot of hope. You understand that the Christian story, we, I mean, we have the only story that makes sense of the world that we live in. And Christ is coming back. And we are going to be changed. And all tears will be wiped away. And the dead will be raised. We have an adoption which gives us hope through the tragedy. Number three, we have an adoption which demands that we give it all away. We see here John turns into love as he keeps going back and forth. He says, we are to be righteous, and oh, by the way, the fullest picture of righteousness is how we love. And how did God love? What does it mean that God loved us? It means that he gave himself completely for us. He gave it all away for our, on our behalf. 
And then we are called to love in the same way. As we are transformed, we are not just simply to be some sort of like holy creatures that are never doing anything wrong, but we are to be active in our transformation. And we are called to embrace the kind of love that our Father, in which our Father loved us, and that is a love that gives. We are to give ourselves completely, to sacrifice ourselves completely for the world around us. You spend yourself in Isaiah. You spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noon day. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. We are to give. We are to love. We are to act. So do you know what is to come? Do you see what Christmas is really all about? Do you see God's love for you? Do you see Christ's power in His return? And are we living a life that makes sense of all of that? Let me close with this hymn. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. The wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reality of Your love for us, the reality of what is to come, and the reality of what we are now freed to be as revealed right here in Your Word through John. We thank You for preserving this Word for us. We pray that Your Spirit will take this Word, take this message, and will will move in us throughout the rest of this day that we will not quickly find something else to busy ourselves with this afternoon, but that we will gaze upon and see your great love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.